All right, how many of you love country music? Oh yeah, you're in heaven this morning, right? This is like a picture of heaven for you, banjo, there you go. Well, how many of you listening to the lyrics had some tension, had some tension of certain of the extremes, you know, is it beer with dinner? Is it hanging out with sinners or going to the city where the pretty girls are? If you're like most, we typically stereotype people. It is very easy for us to to categorize people. It's not very difficult today to flip on the TV and hear the, the political debates going on and all of a sudden categorize people to one side or the other. It's not very difficult to do this in looking at people, hearing what they believe, seeing what they dress like. My uh, friend and I, Steve, we were, we were riding uh, mountain bikes uh, over on the east side. And, uh, you know, you get to meet some interesting people. Sorry, I'm trying to get this cord right here, my umbilical cord. There we go. Um, so Steve and I meet we're, we've definitely, we definitely ride, we ride bikes, um, and you get to meet some interesting people. So this one fella comes out of his car, and his bike looks a lot nicer than his car. So that immediately allowed me to try to make some summary about this guy's life. He gets out, and he's, he's dressed in kind of black uh, clothing, and he has spiked bracelets all on his arm, right? The, the exact thing you need to ride a mountain bike. Um, He's got an open shirt, shorts, and on his neck is hanging this super large silver cross, at least I thought. As I looked further and looked at it, it had a huge skull um, in the middle of this cross, and then behind it was this star thing, and I couldn't tell if it was a pentagram or something. So immediately I'm thinking, whoa, um, I don't know what this guy's riding his bike into the woods for, but probably don't want to follow him. So we strike up a conversation, and uh, he starts talking a bit, and I say, hey, that's quite a cross on your neck. He goes, oh, it's not a cross, it's a sword. Which I'm thinking, that's even worse. You've got spike and a sword, and you're, this is very weird. And immediately I could feel myself stereotyping this guy. He goes, oh, by the way, and behind it is not a pentagram. He goes, this is what a pentagram looked like. This is actually about the five sufferings that Jesus went through on the cross. Oops. <laughs> and I say, I say, so, are you religious? Uh, and he goes, yeah, I go to a Lutheran church down in Appleton. And so there you are. Here I find myself a, a victim of my own message. Why is it that we so quickly want to stereotype people, in the church especially? We measure behavior, we measure activity that we don't agree with, that we think is Christian or non-Christian, and we immediately stereotype them, making them black or white. And we make issues always black and white. That's part of the problem in our Christian culture today. We've, we've stereotype people. This very song is by a band called Jude and the Lion, and they're not postured as a Christian man. They're all Christians, but they're not, they don't play churches. In fact, they tried to get him here and they wouldn't play in the church. Why? Because they want to be in the conversation in a world that's very colorful. Somehow, this song 
spoke to me because it says, yes, you may wear Levi's and cowboy boots or you may wear city slicker stuff, but why are we stereotyping people to be one or the either? It is only when we begin the conversation that we begin to see the color that's added to the life of real people. I want to share with you in this series because I have felt a little bit of what I would call righteous frustration with the church today. And that is because I think as Christians, we're one of the worst in stereotyping people. Now, let me be very clear. The Bible is clear about three categories of people. And I don't apologize for those, and I don't think that's stereotyping. It says there are some that know God. They have a relationship with God. There are some that don't know God. And then there are some that are trying to hurt those that know God. There are three different types of people. But friends, the color and the story of those three different types of people are very different. And in the next three weeks, what I'd like to do is unpack what does the Bible say about how we're to operate with those three different categories of people. Today I want to talk to you about how do we operate somewhere in between, not in stereotypes, but with people that don't know God. The people that don't know God. Now, if we're not going to stereotype, which means overgeneralizing belief about a particular group or class of people, we need to be cautious in this dialogue because I think we've often made the mistake that Christians were to tell non-Christians or people who don't know God how bad they behave, right? You shouldn't be doing those things. Let me tell you about Jesus. Wherever in the Bible does it show us that we change a person's heart through morality? The scriptures are clear that we are to be different, unique, in a way that God has changed our lives and we're to be an influence around people around us. Now I want to get a little bit into uh, this topic this morning about those who don't know God, but this way. I want to talk about urgency. Now, urgency is something that requires fast or swift action. This, uh, we're preparing for our oldest daughter's wedding. And I thought the hardest part of this was going to be paying for it. It's actually all of the things that you have to fix your home up for because everybody's going to be in your home. So there's all these fix-it projects. And I'm kind of handy with power tools and growing up around that. So we have an upstairs bathroom and we're going to we're going to redo it. Well, I look down below the sink and see copper tubing, and there's no shutoff valves. It goes straight into the fixture. And so I think, okay, rarely have I ever seen that. Usually there's shutoff valves. It means I'm going to have to shut off the main water, right? I should probably find that eventually before I undo this stuff, right? So not a problem, but I'm a very efficient worker, so I'm trying to do multiple things at once and get it all ready. And so I told Trish, I said, we're going to have to find the main water shut off before I take this off. So what I do in the meantime, though, is I'm going to get it disassembled as far as I can uh, before I shut the water off. I think I had like a half turn on the cold water supply when it shot through the ceiling. (laughs) Now the scene is, I have, my daughters are in their room, and I now am freaking out because it's There is no flooring. It's all just wood. It's going to go through the next floor. I don't know how to shut this. I can't shut this off. Well, I've got this thing, this the the faucet piece. I'm trying to jam it back in there. It's shooting all over. But it's cold well water. 
So here's what I'm doing. I'm out of breath. I can't, I can't say, shut the water off. I'm trying to scream in the house. Oh my gosh, there's water everywhere. There was droplets of water coming off the ceiling. In an instant, the urgency changed for me. It wasn't, hey, at some point we're going to have to shut off the water. Immediately it was, find the water valve. Now, my wife, who's in the, the village of this uh, right now in the service, she deserves like a medal of honor of some sorts because I could not believe she found it and found it fast. Um, minimal damage. I wonder how urgent we feel about our time on this earth. Let me ask you a question this morning that I want you to think about. I want you to ask the, answer the question is, what are you really urgent about today? What is it that's pressing for you? Is it finances? Is it retirement? Is it work that you're going to have to do this week? Is it relationship? The heart of God is urgent about one thing, that all would know him. Let me say that again. The heart of God is urgent about one thing, that all would know him. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is slow, not slow, in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God wants, in another way to say this, the message does a pretty good job as this is saying, he is restraining himself on account of you. And he doesn't want anyone lost. He's giving everyone space and time to change. He's giving everyone in Brown County Jail space and time to change. He's giving everyone in Angola. He's giving the cheating spouse time to change. He's giving everyone that does not know him time to change. God is urgent about people knowing him. I want you to think for a moment, what do you think God's role for us in this world is? I mean, what is urgent in your life? Because for God, it's others to know him. John 17, and we know even after that prayer, but Jesus leaves a missional mandate for Christ followers. He didn't say, hey, listen, I, I'm going to leave and just hold out for a while because then the evacuation plan will happen. If you know me, great, fellowship at churches, huddle with a bunch of Christians. No, what he said in John 17 is, I'm leaving you in the world. I want you to be a part of the world. I want you to get to know other people. Remember, Jesus said himself, I didn't come to save those who are healthy, who did not need me. I came for the sick, the broken, the lost. Why is it as Christians we so quickly can huddle together and think that church is just for us? Why is it we can huddle together and think God is just for us when he longs that nobody be lost? In a world that stereotypes and pushes people to black and white ends, where is it that we're called into the colorful conversation of finding where people lie? Somewhere in between some of that mess. It would have been easy for me with this kid on a bike to go, ah, uh, useless. Friends, that's happened to me 
several times where it, it, our, our cultural perspectives about what we think is right and wrong, about what we think, gets played into how we engage people. And God doesn't want anyone lost. This morning, I want to have us look at Acts 17. Paul, uh, an apostle uh, and, and one that was, had his life changed by God on the road to Damascus, but previous to this, is really what we'd call a terrorist. If you look at the life of Paul, pre-knowing Christ, he was killing Christians. He was a terrorist. Not only that, he was an expert in religious law, in Jewish law. He would have done circles around any of us in this room. He wrote most of the New Testament. He was a very wise and a very capable person of arguing you into a corner and then also having you killed. And this is the one that God saved. Now we get to see Paul after Christ has invaded his life. And Paul senses the urgency. He senses that the spout of of the time is short. We've got to get this fixed. We've got to get the message out. And you find that Paul doesn't waste any time. There is accounts in the letters of Paul entering cities and immediately saying, are you a disciple? Do you know Jesus? And are you spirit-filled? And then he'd be meeting with them. And I want to give you six attributes of six ways that we can enter into the conversation and not stereotype people into black and white, but begin to engage people that don't know God. Now, if you don't know God this morning, can I just affirm first that you're here, and second, you're not a project. I don't consider people that I know that don't know God as my project. They are people, as I heard this week, and I I love the way this pastor said it, I don't want them to spend eternity in a place called hell. I don't want that. And I've met some pretty rough people. I don't want that for the guy on the bike. Now, he's Lutheran and probably knows Jesus, but you get my point. I don't want that for the death row guys at Angola. And there's an urgency that starts to peak in me of longing for that. Now, I will say practically, many Christians today don't know how to do this. When asked, a lot of people in the church today, how many non-believing friends do you know? Very few people. And then those who do know them, when was the last time you actually shared your faith? Even less. When, When was the last time you invited them? When was the last time you actually led a person? to that place of receiving Jesus Christ. That is how God left us. He didn't leave it for pastors. He left it for all of us. And I want to give you six attributes of that this morning. We're going to do that in Acts 17. If you have your Bibles, it's Paul, and he's immediately in a place that most Christians would never go to. He says in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens. He's in Athens, Greece. If you're a historian, you know that some would argue that Greece defeated Rome by its hedonism, its philosophy, uh, by its, its pagan thinking. And Paul is in this city. It's like I've heard people before, oh, don't go to this city, it's just, it's godless. No reason to go to that place. Paul's in Athens. He was greatly distressed, though, to see that this city was full of idols. Paul had a sense of I don't like this. The first lesson we can learn from Paul is, friends, 
in order for us not to just stereotype people and watch the news and just point at what's bad, he enters in the world. I said it last week, and if you didn't hear last week's message, I would encourage you to do that. But you're in a place that God wants you. In most cases, we're trying to get ourselves out of the fire, out of the adversity. You might be in the very job place that God wants a light in. And it may be hard. And you may be working with people that are, are not going to treat you well. And you're going to feel the oppression. But God calls Christ followers to be in the world. Not of it. Let me clarify. Not of the world. But in it. Be in it. Be, be around it. Be exposed to what's really going on. I try not to be in this building much during the week. Because you can become Christian incubated, right? Christian greenhouse effect, where you've lost touch. Now, I love uh, our church, and I love connecting on Sundays, but I also love meeting people that don't know God. I love it when I meet somebody whose language is so colorful that, um, and we're getting to what we do, and I try to delay as much as possible before I say the pastor word, Right? Because I know immediately, in some cases, they'll clean it up. I actually even like it more when they don't, because I know, wow, they're really not worried about this. So Paul first places himself in the world, but let me give you something I learned from David Veerman in his book about evangelism. He talks about this. If you're going to, you want to be, have more of an impact and be in a conversation with people that don't know God you first have to put yourself in a place where people that don't know God are. Now, let me caution here. Some of you extremists will all of a sudden, well, Troy said I should go to the strip club. Yep, I'm out. <laughs> nope, they did not say that. There are definitely lines. But even in that song, I like hanging out with sinners in my home. Is there a house on the, your street or in your neighborhood that you know the people don't know God. Have you gone over? Have you introduced yourself? Have you had them over for dinner? You want to think about how do you get yourself in places that you begin to be more around people that don't know God. Again, they're not projects. It's God longs to see that all will know him. Do you have that? Is it just left to God to have that passion and not us as his children, as sons and daughters of God? No, we're to carry that heart into wherever we're at. I love going to the gym. Now, this sounds really awkward. It happened at the Y2. Always in the sauna, there seems to be a God conversation. It's an awkward place. Towel around your waist, and we're starting to talk. But you tell you, it's a captive audience, right? And it always, guys seem to talk a little bit more freer in there, and Boy, I, there have been great conversations. You've got to get into the places where you're going to be able to, to hear and talk with people that don't know God. Where is that? Now, if you struggle with certain things, for instance, if you're an alcoholic, I don't, don't go to the bar. That's not a good place. But I tell you, there's a lot of interesting conversation, a lot of lost people living in those places. And you know that. Someone needs to go. And Paul has this idea, and he knows. He goes to Ephesus, the most decadent place you could ever imagine. It makes Las Vegas look like a McDonald's playland. 
He, he's in the heartbeat of these places. It would be like going to Amsterdam. It would be like going to, to Las Vegas. I'm going to go right to the heart of it. I've even heard people say here in Green Bay, oh, Madison's lost. It's, it's a, don't go down there. It's terrible. Someone needs to go. Some people need to feel the urgency to be in that space and mix it up around those people. When I was doing high school ministry, I remember there was a kid in, in Burbank that was a cocaine dealer. And he was one of the most influential kids. Great looking, you would have never known it. You would have stereotyped him in a, in a very positive light. And I had heard he was having a party and I was trying to get this kid. He started to meet with him. And so I showed, and he owned his own house, by the way, senior in high school. So I showed up. Knocked on the door and at this party. I, you would have met, you, people clean up really fast um, in that situation. And I'm not recommending that, but I'll tell you what, uh, very interesting conversations that ensued the weeks after that. Like, why were you there, Troy? Well, why were you there? I think you've got to put yourself in places that you're going to be able to have conversations. Second is, if, if you don't put yourself in places to be seen, how are people going to know who you are? You've got to do that. Because thirdly, you want them to understand. Begin to understand the God that you love. That takes time. Now, let's look here. Paul, he's angst. He's in Athens. He sees these idols, this pagan city. So he reasons in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day, those who happen to be there. Look what Paul doesn't do. He sees the sin. He does not put on the billboard, right? You're all going to hell. He doesn't scream out Bible verses. What does it say he does? Day by day, he faithfully returns to that place to dialogue with them. That's the second piece. Not only you have to put yourself in the place where people don't know God are, you need to start having conversations. <gasps> What do we talk about? Anything. Begin to have the conversation and to dig. Listen, the guy's wearing a sword around his neck. That's quite a cross you have there, right? I'm, I'm just talking about what he's wearing. I could have went further about, I don't, what happens when you wipe out, right? <laughs> have a conversation, enter into it. When I first started here six years ago, we tried to do these neighborhood barbecues You'd be shocked about how many people asked when it was inviting people that don't know God or go to church. They said, what do we talk about? I said, you need help talk, figuring out what to talk about at a barbecue. Aren't we the capital for like tailgating around the world? I mean, can't we just say Packer and then there's like four hours of conversation? <laughs> I mean, I think because we have lost perspective about what that is. Jesus, John chapter 4 enters the conversation. Remember? The place that you didn't go as a Jew was Samaria because it was known as religiously people that had mixed breeding, they called half-breads, religiously. That's the pic picture that the Bible paints, or the Jews painted of these Samaritans. And Jesus says, oh no, we're going to Samaria. I'm going to stop at a well noonday because I know men didn't normally do that, and most of the women drew the water, and I'm going to have a conversation with a woman that's committing adultery. Jesus enters the conversation. How many of us get so fearful and pent up about, 
oh man, I don't know what to say because I don't have a Bible answer. I find so many Christians today are so worried and really it's just begin to dialogue and find out who they are. Ask them questions. Paul enters into a conversation. It doesn't just do that once. Like I'm doing the God box thing. I had a conversation with a really bad person today. Thank you, God. You know, what do I get for that? It's day by day he dialogues. It's hard work. Verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers begin to debate with him. Now, Paul, because of this, he's regularly showing up, he's starting to get attention. They're starting to go, this, guy's, this guy knows what he's talking about. He seems pretty learned, like he's, he's had a background, some education. Some of them start asking, and they, as a jab here, what's this babbler trying to say? They're probably the very arrogant academic culture. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. Now, this would have been not a problem. In Greek and Roman culture at that time, uh, the idea, there was a, there's a phrase that says it was easier to find a god than a man in Rome. And the reason was, anytime you had anything good going on in your life, you would, like Bobby, Bobby would say, that song went really well, we're going to carve the banjo god and say, thank you, banjo god, you have, you've blessed us with great music this morning. You would. If you were healed from a foot injury, you would carve a foot. There were, they have found, archaeologists have found digs of hundreds and thousands of statues representing gods. Now, you're going to find Paul's starting to talk about another god. Well, this would have piqued their interest because they didn't want to miss a god. So look at this. Seems like he's advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Now he gets an invitation. You know that you have entered into a conversation and that you're beginning to have impact when you get invited in. Invited into that next level, to that next space to have a conversation. One great measure for you to know if you're having any impact on on people that don't know God is, are you getting any invites? Inquiries about who you are. They may not even fully know it's about God, but something different about you. So they took him to Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. The third part is, Paul enters their world. He gets invited to enter into their spaces. I think we need to look a lot harder at how urgent is these people around us that don't know God and do we attempt to reason with them day by day, beginning to build that integrity and that relationship, eventually to be invited into spaces, whether it's their home, whether it's into a deeper discussion. I know that when I begin to really reach out to someone over time, eventually it's Hey, can I talk to you for a couple more minutes? Hey, could we get a coffee? Hey, could we go out as a couple? It, it just starts to grow. It starts to grow. You enter their world. Matthew 9, Jesus again, he'll get some feedback from the religious of the time. How is it that you're eating with sinful people? How can you spend time with sinners? Jesus, his answer about, I didn't come here to 
to hang out with people that are well. I came out to do that with people that are hurting. Friends, that's the nature of what we do. It's the God's strategy. It wasn't incubate and hibernate and hide and then wait for the evacuation for God to come back and, and to pull us all out of this bad place. He says there's a kingdom now. There's a relationship now. There are people right now in front of you. There's an urgency for us to begin to enter into that world. So then Paul stands up at this meeting in Areopagus and watch the beauty and the strategy of what he does. People of Athens, I see that in every way you are hell bound and you are so bad and you are so disobedient. Right? He doesn't use that platform to do that. Look what he does. He affirms them. I can tell you're very religious. Not only that, he says, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. This is brilliant. Capture this. What does it imply that Paul has done previous to this meeting? He has studied. He has looked around. He knows about them. Friends, I love doing this chaplain unfold. In fact, there was a chapel at 6.30 in the morning this, this, uh, today uh, at the stadium. And because there's a, it's a work day today, and so they don't have church. And so I asked the guys today, I go, look, do you want last week's message or a preview of this morning's? And a group said, well, we want this morning's. But I know every time I step in there, I've never played any professional sport. But it's important for me, what? To, to know their culture. It's important for me to recognize what's relevant to them and how can I talk about that and use those things to help un, unpack and help them discover faith. Paul does this. He's walked around. He's looked carefully at the objects of their worship. And look what he says. I found one, an inscription to an unknown God. So remember I said they had gods for everything, all these statues. The Romans and the Greeks came up with a way not to be uh, in trouble or leave out a God. Because if you left out a God in that theology, right, that you'd be in trouble. So then they carve one God called the unknown God. That meant, in case we forgot any, you're all covered in this one unknown God. Well, Paul says, I know this unknown God. Well, who is it? I mean, he's, he's brilliantly used this, what they understand and what they know. So many times it's so disturbing. We have it in our city People think that it's to put a billboard around their neck or scream hellfire and brimstone to people. Friends, I think there is times to, where, where we need to preach that message with boldness. But more often than not, I have found it's being in their space and having a conversation with them. Not stereotyping people, but entering in. And Paul does a brilliant job at this and says, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. You don't know. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Paul knows our culture. Matthew 6, Jesus does this brilliantly on the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, he's in Galilee. I've been on that mountainside. And he says, I want to teach them about worry. What can I use? Ah, they know lilies and the flowers of this field. Hey, everybody, look around at the flowers that you see here in Galilee every day. Who clothes them? He says, look at the birds. Jesus did the same thing in his teaching. And friends, you all have that. To get to know people, to begin to dialogue around what they know. Now, can I, again, I'm going to back up here as another step. 
they're not projects. They're people we care about. There's an urgency because if, if the heart of God, he, he doesn't want any one of them to perish, shouldn't that be our heart too, no matter what they've done? And friends, we don't change lives of people through morality. Browbeating people to change the way they live as non-believers does not fix a heart. I've had people often say, could you tell them to stop doing this? And I said, no. And they go, oh my gosh, why? You're a pastor. I go, because they don't know God. Asking them not to commit adultery, asking them not to do X, Y, or Z that the Scripture says means nothing to them until what? God invades their life and they recognize their brokenness. Friends, that often happens through a conversation about God. And they see it in your life. Know their culture. Paul then gets this great opportunity in this platform. It'd be a great movie scene. And, and he gets up, and we don't have time to unpack that, but he begins to present the truth of Christ. He talks about Jesus. It says, the God who made the world, and he, un, he, he unpacks this for all of these philosophers of the time. And that's where I love that Paul says in Colossians, he gets a chance to share the mystery of Christ. Now, I just want an honest show of hands right now. How many of you feel fearful and are resistant to share about Jesus because you feel like you don't know enough about him? Raise your hand. I want to give you great, a great piece of affirmation and some relief this morning. Paul, one of the most educated religious people of his time, could have talked circles around any of us in this room, around faith, knows Jesus deeply, could debate anyone, uses this word in Colossians. Pray for me that God will open a door that I may speak forth the mystery of Christ. What is that saying? He didn't get it. What I love about being a Christ follower is that I may not have all the answers. In fact, I don't. You may be surprised to think, is I, I can't sit with the great scholars of this world. Many of them, I don't feel like I'm that knowledgeable. I can tell you a lot of stuff about God, but I don't understand it. To me, Jesus is still a mystery about how he changes my life. I can tell you how it works. I understand my brokenness. I can tell you what I felt I could tell you the moment that I felt broken over my sin. I can tell you about the transformation, how he put in me a desire to change my language, to change the way I looked at people. I could tell you how he allows me to walk death row and weep for men who have raped and murdered, and I long to see them come to Jesus. Who, that's a mystery to me. And when you begin to share about what Jesus has done in you, it matters less about what you know about him. Now again, I'm not discounting knowledge. We should continue to pursue to know more about God. But friends, Paul gives us this great chance to share the mystery then. I don't know. Remember the blind man who was healed and he gets grilled? Who was he? Who was this Jesus? Is he the Christ? And he's finally just done. He says, I don't know who he was. All I know, I was blind and now I see. If anything, he healed me. Friends, that's the mystery of Christ. Paul gets a chance to share this and you have that chance too. He finishes up here and says, when they heard about the resurrection, 
uh, of the dead, some of them sneered. This was a big issue back then, a big theological issue. Some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Now, interesting, I know, and I said this at the 815, and I thought about not telling you, but I'll tell you. There are times where I'll teach a message, and I can watch your body, I can watch your faces and your body language, and thought, oh, they didn't like that, they didn't like that. I, it's so easy, and I, I have like two tapes going on in my head. I'm, tell, I'm talking to you, then I'm watching your responses. It's interesting. Well, I've said some things in the past that people have walked out, sure, and most pastors do. I remember one time I talked about forgiving some of those guys on death row that had murdered. Remember that? And I had a woman get up and run out. Now, quickly, I thought, well, I just, I can't worry about it. And in some ways, I've kind of stereotyped when people do that. Eh, I guess you're just not concerned about God and push them into a category. After that service, that woman came up to me and said, hey, I want you to know. I agreed with everything you said, and I'm sorry I walked out. My sister was murdered, and I struggled hearing that again. I thought, ah, Troy, you know? Once again, stereotyping, but, but recognizing even some of these sneered. Paul could have said, forget you, but here's what happens. He says, there's another group that says, we want to hear you again on this subject. And then at that, Paul left the council. Some people came followers. And you get the sense that Paul continues the relationship again and again and again. He daily entered the conversation. Let me ask you this morning, who deserves your urgency this morning? Is it a family relative? Someone who doesn't know God? Someone who could possibly their life could be over in the next few days? We don't know. We don't know our time. How urgent is, is it for you? On a dumb illustration about a faucet going on and shutting off the water, it became very relevant to me that, oh my gosh, now find that. Find it. And you read Luke 15 about the lost coin and the, the woman who loses that coin and the urgency of finding that there's a sense of urgency in the gospel that if you don't understand friends I don't know if you've got the full picture of it because it's saying we should live like the heart of God and that is he doesn't want anyone lost quit stereotyping them no matter what news they listen to or how they behave God longs for all to know him and so Paul gives this picture in 2 Corinthians 3. He's talking to the Corinthian church and he says it this way. You yourselves are a letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ and the result of our ministry written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. We're going to go to response this morning and the question is, what, what's happening with the letter that God wrote on your heart? Is it sealed in an envelope that you just have not allowed to be delivered anywhere in the world where no one deserves that kind of urgency? Let them find God on their own. They're too far gone. You've stereotyped them. Or have you entered into this in-between space where God calls his people to have a heart like him and have a conversation? And you be the letter.
that God has written on your life. Friends, you don't have to have all the answers. You have to have Jesus. You don't have to have to all, all the right behavior because, yes, you're a sinner too. And we get so hung up on, yeah, but I'm, I'm a sinner. How can I talk to them about God when I sin? Yes, you do. And that's why you have Jesus. And that's why you're a letter of love to people. Who needs that urgency in your life and around you this morning? Is it someone at work? Is it family? Is it a spouse? The God of the universe longs that they not be lost. He longs that we move into this in-between space, somewhere in between, and enter into their world, know their culture, have a conversation, faithfully begin to dialogue about this mystery of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray as we take communion this morning that we wouldn't dishonor your name by taking that with no sense of urgency for others. God, that we'd be reminded of the grace that we were found, but God, that I pray that you press and convict upon all of us the urgency of those that don't know you and our calling to be a love letter to them. In Jesus' name, amen.